0: Thanks, Natalie. Wondering how many of you uh, paid attention. There was a, there was a court case uh, in coming from South Carolina. Uh, Alex Murda. Did you? Uh, some of you follow that at all? On the, I mean, it was a little bit. It was pretty. It was a pretty nasty case where. Uh, uh, Murder of uh, Maggie, his wife, and his son. I believe Paul. And it was a long case. It was about. It lasted about six weeks, and uh, there was a lot of elements to it. I, I I didn't watch it super closely. Just kind of paid attention to what was happening. And one of the interesting parts of it was it was all circumstantial evidence. So there was no wasn't more uh, hard or solid evidence. It was circumstantial, and they're following and. And I, I didn't feel like his defense was very strong. He was saying, yes, even though I've embezzled from my own law firm, and I've, uh, I've robbed and stolen from my, uh, my clients, and I'm addicted to drugs, I would never kill my, my wife and son. I didn't find that overly convincing uh, of a defense. But then he, he's a trial lawyer, apparently, He gave his own testimony. He decided to share on the stand. And I heard that it was a pretty powerful testimony that he cried at all the right things. He showed appropriate uh, emotions. He used the, the, the nicknames, the family names of his wife and his son that were murdered. And so there was this question of would the jurors be convinced, despite this pretty significant uh, uh, circumstantial evidence, it just would take one to say beyond reasonable a reasonable doubt, I, I just don't know, like, he was pretty convincing. So the question was, would they believe his testimony? Well, it was a long trial, six weeks, but it only took three hours. And they came back with a guilty Most who have thought thought justice was done. It, It seemed pretty evident. And the reason that I bring this up is that the Gospel of John, in all the elements and layers of meaning that he writes, that there is in some way a subtle trial that is happening. That the language that he uses... He uses language like testimony and witness and accuser, that, that he uses this kind of language and, in fact, at the end of the gospel is an actual trial. Jesus is on trial. Uh, in fact, uh, we see uh, Pontius Pilate, Kepha, if you have that final, yeah, it says when Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the stone pavement, which is in Aramaic is Gabbatha, right? There's this idea that there, these testimonies and the signs are all, there, there's a witness that's taking place. And what's interesting in the Gospel of John is you would think to a certain degree it's Jesus that's on trial. But that's actually not how he's written it. Do you know who's on trial? The reader. The world. I.E. you and me. Look at your neighbor and say, you know, you're on trial here. You are on trial as you walk through this, right? Now, it's an interesting trial, though. It's different. The question is not whether you are innocent or guilty. All right? It's a different kind of trial. Because actually that ship has sailed. Yeah, I I don't know if you know this or not, but... You're guilty. You're guilty. In fact, the world is guilty. Think back to the prologue. When, when John is writing the prologue, He uses this interesting language. He says, This he's talking about Jesus, that he was with God and was God. And then it says, The true light, Jesus, that gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world. And though the world was made through him, right, this claim that he is the source of life, that he is. God and the creator and the sustainer of life, though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. We missed him. And then here this condemning statement He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. We all stand guilty. We all you could call it the Pinocchio syndrome. We wanted to be our own boy and walk away from our creator, the one who knit us together and live life on our own terms. And so really the verdict that's happening is not guilt or innocence. Here is the question that John is, is bringing forward witnesses and testimony like a court case. God is, is sharing this, these powerful signs or, or evidence. You could say circumstantial evidence, but it's pretty hard evidence, right? He's bringing this, and here's the question of the trial is, what will you do with this Jesus? What's the decision that you will make? Because he's the only one that even though you are guilty, that can pronounce forgiveness and redemption and new life. Now the passage that we're going to read, John chapter 5, if you've brought your Bibles, please turn there. There are Bibles located in the front of the seats with you, and there's no story. The the story that comes in the beginning of five kind of helps this understanding, but it's a lot of teaching, and I want to help us, if we can, is to kind of imagine this trial taking place, and these witnesses giving testimony, trying to see what you will decide and how you will live. So, so, uh, Pastor Jedediah preached the healing of the man who was invalid for 38 years at the at, at the pool, right? And what's interesting is at the end he's healed, and he's carrying his mat as Jesus told him to. And the and, and the religious leaders of the time said, "Hey, you're not supposed to carry your mat on the Sabbath day." They they're more more focused on the the. The letter of the law rather than the miracle that happened and they said who told you to carry the mat he said I don't know and then he becomes a little bit of a tattletale at the end he tells on Jesus alright which is kind of funny but Jesus he challenges him in this way the, look at verse 14 of chapter 5 it says later Jesus found him the man he healed at the temple and said to him, see, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. So despite that warning, he becomes a tattletale, tells on Jesus. But I think it's intriguing that Jesus is saying, listen, you've experienced this miracle in your life, you've experienced the goodness of God and you haven't changed your life. Stop sinning. So even though this is a a trial motif, it's not just trying to get you to say, I believe in Jesus. It's trying to say, In light of who Jesus is, if you really believe, then change your life. Live in response to who he is. All right, let's unpack this just a little bit. Again, we have this trial scene starting at verse 16. It says, So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, My father is always at work to this very day, and I am working too For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So what's happening here is Jesus is about to teach in a profound way. And he's talking about his special relationship with the Father, his unique relationship with the Father as a way of testimony to you and me that we would believe and live in response. And in fact, there's going to be some powerful language and really he's going to pull from an Old Testament perspective. And he's saying, I'm going to... Name some things that really are only the prerogative of God to do. But I am doing, Jesus is saying. He's saying, Yes, this is, if you understand the Old Testament, these things are only what God would do. And Jesus is going to say, And I'm doing them. As a testimony, of his divinity, of his equality with God as a testimony to you and me of who he is. Verse 19, Jesus gave them this answer, very truly I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees the Father doing because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater things than these, so that you will be amazed. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. We're going to unpack these verses in just a little bit. But it's pulling from, again, the prerogative of the Father. Jesus is doing the work of the Father, therefore making a statement about who he is. And then I would say, starting in verse 24, he's going to invite us to believe and respond to this revelation, the the witness of the Old Testament. Very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Very truly, I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. He's talking about here spiritual death. And some of us, maybe in this room, are watching that we've not yet heard the voice of Christ Jesus. We've not crossed over from life to death. For the Father has life in himself. That's really a God thing. So he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Still a God thing, but now also a Jesus thing. And he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. We'll talk about this more, but judgment is a God thing. And now we're declaring it's also a Jesus thing. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Now he's probably talking about the resurrection that will happen. And for those who have believed in him, they will be raised to new life. Those who fail and miss the trial and don't hear his voice, they will be raised but to eternal separation from God or hell. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. By myself, I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. Now, starting in verse 31, he turns to this idea of testimony. Again, in your mind, think of this trial of people taking the stand, giving testimony to you about who Jesus is and how he's inviting you to live. If I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies in my favor, and I know that his testimony about me is true, probably talking about the Father, possibly talking about the Spirit. You have sent John, and he has testified to the truth. John was a testimony. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it that you may be saved. It, essentially, he's saying that John was testimony. It's not that it was unimportant, but not, it doesn't rise to the level of the testimony of the Father. He says, John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. I have testimony weightier than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I am doing, testify that the Father has sent me. He's saying another testimony in this trial that you are in is the miracles, the works, like we just saw last week in the man who is invalid for 38 years. For the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. The ultimate testimony is the Father in heaven. And the Father who sent me himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice nor seen his form nor does his word dwell in you for you do not believe the one he sent. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in, in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. Yet another powerful testimony in this trial is the pages of Scripture. Yet you refuse to come to me and to have life. I do not accept glory from human beings, but I know you. I know that you do, uh, do not have the love of God in your hearts. I have come in my Father's name and you do not accept me because if someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe since you accept glory from, from one another but do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. But do not think I, have accu- I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses. Again, notice the trial language. That we do have accusers. For the religious leaders of Jesus' time who were committed to the Old Testament, Moses, whom they think is the source of eternal life, his teaching becomes an accuser against them. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. He's inviting them to recognize that Moses is yet another testimony given regarding Jesus. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? All right, a little bit there, huh? (laughs) A little challenging in this teaching. And sometimes I, I think that we're meant to live in verses of scripture and allow the Spirit to teach us Again and again and again. Sometimes new insight. Sometimes we, we see that and go, boy, I don't get what just happened at all. What, what is he saying? What's, what's going on? And as I've been living in these passages of scripture, I thought, here's the, the best I can do for you. Is that I'm going to focus in on the beginning portion of what we read. And try and help us see that the Old Testament also is a testimony of who Christ is and inviting us to live in response to that. Going back to this idea that if you study the scriptures, the Old Testament, you recognize that there's some roles that are exclusively left to God the Father. That he was going to be one who is the source of life or miracles and healing. That he's the source of new life and resurrection. And that he alone is the source of judgment. Healing, resurrection, and judgment. And so these religious leaders would have recognized that this is God-thing. For healing and the source of life, to resurrection and judgment. Big deals. And Jesus comes along and says, guess what? Me and the Father are so intimately connected that I'm becoming the source of healing and new life. The source of resurrection and the source of judgment. Will you believe? Will you change your life in response to these amazing claims of Jesus? All right. Let's look at the first one, that first area of of where Jesus is claiming this idea, this idea that, that the authority to heal. And that's in verse 20, if you look again, for the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these. He's talking about the healing. He's talking about renewal he's he's talking about this work that was primarily God that God would bring in even though we live in a broken world and we're suffering under the consequences of our rebellion and our sin and we're broken that God promises in the old testament that he would send a king he would send a messiah who would usher in the kingdom of God and in the source of the kingdom would be healing and restoration. A beautiful example of that is Isaiah. Isaiah spends about 35 chapters talking about the re- rebellion and sinfulness of God's children. And then in chapter 25, it talks about the kingdom in which God will bring, the Messiah will bring. It says, Then will the lame leap Like a deer, and the mute tongues shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and the streams in the desert. Jesus is saying, The Father loves the Son. Would you allow the miracles to be a testimony of who I am? And would you change your life? Would you live in response to Jesus as the healer? A number of years ago, I was, I was studying uh, the healing of Jesus, and I came across a, a pastor who was known for, for healing, and he said, you know, I realized in prayer That I had accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, but I had not accepted Him as my healer. And I wanted to change my life, right? The the new covenant, the, the faith, the Christian faith, is this idea that God is supernaturally at work in our lives. And that our lives should reflect his work, his supernatural work, his healing and restoration. That we should be a people that as we struggle in our brokenness, whether it's emotional or relational or physical brokenness, that we're recognizing that Jesus came as our Lord and Savior, absolutely, yes. But he also came as our healer. And that we're called to receive that healing, to pray for that healing, to entrust God for all of that. And we're called to extend that healing, to offer, to be the representative of Christ. As Christ was the representative of the Father, so we're called to be the representative of Christ to extend that healing. Friends, I think the church has missed this aspect of the gospel to a certain degree. In Luke 9, Jesus turns to his disciples and it says, when Jesus called the 12 together, he gave them power and authority to drive out demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. And the testimony of the New Testament is that power and authority is given to each generation, to each people, to walk in the healing of Christ and to extend the healing in the name of Christ. Early in my ministry, as I was wrestling with this, I wanted to tell you the story of a neighbor named Adrian. Adrian, we did some community block party kinds of stuff, and and Adrian was in his mid-20s, He's was uh, Catholic, raised Catholic, and so we were just friends, and he knew I was a pastor and so forth, and... Hadn't seen him for a couple of weeks, and all of a sudden he showed up at our, our doorstep and knocked on the door. We opened the door, and, and there was, he, was, he was jaundiced. There was like a yellow to his skin. He did not look good. He said, Eric, uh, you haven't seen me for a while because I, I went to the doctor and I have been diagnosed with pan- pancreatic cancer. Mid 20s, it was a shock. He was married, but no kids at this point. And uh, we, we said, Adrian, we, w- we will pray for you. Thank you for letting us know. So we prayed for him there. Again, he wasn't a part of our, our church plant or congregation, but he told me that. So I just started praying for Adrian. And, uh, and then he called me about two weeks later. And he said, could you come over, Eric, and I have some questions for you. And I said, sure. And I walked over there and I, and I felt like I was stepping onto holy ground and in fact, I was super intimidated. Pancreatic cancer felt fierce to me. I don't know if that makes sense, But and so I'm trying to reconcile the teaching of scripture that Jesus is the healer and I'm walking in that and then this Adrian, he has this, he's wrestling with pancreatic cancer. And he said, Erica, I'm scared. Not really for my own life. It's okay if I die. I'm scared for my wife and what will happen. And his mom lived with them. What will happen with my mom? Can you tell me anything that will alleviate my fears? And I'm like, God, what do I say to Adrian? And I do feel like it was the Holy Spirit. And he said, I said, Adrian, I can tell you the incredible news of Jesus Christ. That he's come to share the love of God, extend the forgiveness of sins, and for us to receive and be granted eternal life, and take peace in that. And I, I shared the gospel, the, the bridge diagram with him. Some of you Days of the Kingdom know what that is. And Adrian said, I want that. I want that for myself. And so we prayed. He received Christ in that moment. And then he said, Eric, will Jesus heal me? What do you say in that moment, right? And I said, Adrian, Jesus is the healer. And I don't know what he's going to do. He's going to heal you in this moment, or he's going to heal you in eternity. But I know this, we get to ask for healing. Because that's what the New Testament teaches. So I prayed as hard as I could possibly pray for Adrian. So they offered him to extend his life with chemotherapy. They, they put a stint that couldn't be uh, pulled out at that time uh, the, the, where the medical procedure was. And they said, you need to get your ducks in order And if we give you the chemotherapy, we can extend perhaps to a year or plus. And so we did that. We prayed. He's walking through that. Well, it was two months later. He knocked on our door again. He wasn't jaundiced anymore. His wife was with him. And they're crying. And he said... Eric they can't explain it. The cancer is gone. Wow. And they said they tried to say something like you know, I guess the chemotherapy was stronger than we imagined and and he was like he was like no, it's Jesus. It's Jesus and And then there was this invitation for Adrian to change his life, to live in a different way. By the way, they said that the stint and the chemotherapy, that they wouldn't really ever be able to have kids after that, but it really only mattered. They were just trying to extend his life. And two years later, his wife got pregnant, So it's just this this God story. Now I know I've prayed for others and they've not been healed. And we have to wrestle through that and understand, have a, I believe, a theology of healing as well as a theology of suffering. But here's the bottom line is Jesus came, yes, as a Lord and Savior, a forgiver but also a healer. And he doesn't just call us to say, well, yeah, I believe we're good. He calls us to say, I'm going to walk in that healing. I, I'm going I'm to ask God for healing and restoration. I'm going I'm to pray for others for that healing and restoration. And I'm just going to trust in God for the results. Can't figure it all out. I'm going to keep it simple, but I'm just going to believe that Jesus is healing today in the 21st century just like he was in that moment. He's using the church, you and I, to do that. And so let's pray for healing and restoration. Well, let's talk before we do that, which we're going to do. Let's go on to the next Prerogative that is only the Father's. And that is this, this idea of resurrection. Again, look at verse 21 with me. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. This would have been recognized as an incredible claim by Jesus... First century religious leaders would be like, who is this guy that he is claiming that the source of life is in him? I was thinking back to the Old Testament. There's a, an incredible story from Ezekiel where, where uh, God gives Ezekiel, the prophet, a vision in in verse 37 and he's teaching Israel about who God is who he is and what he will do that even though they've rebelled and their their faith is dry and dead that God yet has plans for them so he gives Ezekiel this vision of a valley of bones it's dry bones. And it's probably in an aftermath of a battle and those bodies would have been left and just the, the skeletons that are there. He gives Ezekiel this vision and then he asks him this question, son of man, can these bones live? And Ezekiel's like, "I, I you know, I don't know, like, And so he says this, so he says, prophesy to these bones. So Ezekiel, it says, so I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound. And the bones came together, bone to bone. I looked and tendons and flesh appeared on them and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy son of man. Guess what happened? These dead warriors brought to life and he was saying, This, I am God, and this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to grant you new life, Israel, children of God. Jesus was saying in these claims that he was both the source of the original life, physical life, and is the source of spiritual life today. Will you believe it, and will you receive it? You know, friends, I've been meditating on the church today post-COVID, and that this world looks a little bit different post-COVID, and the church looks a little bit different. And I believe wholeheartedly that God is not wanting to restore us back to where the church was. That he is wanting to bring new life to the church. And that we need to stop looking back to how things were, but look at the invitation for how things are today. And if you think about this, a little bit overly challenging here, you can believe that God, at the very least, he allowed COVID. Some would argue that he caused COVID. But at the very least, we have to acknowledge that he allowed COVID. He allowed the the social and the racial and the political strife that is present in our world today. At the very least, he allowed all that. Yes, he is God. The question is, what was he doing in allowing all those things? I want to suggest to you, in part, he was pruning his church. He was cutting away some of the dead branches. Maybe even removing some lampstands of churches. He was bringing truth out. And one of the ways that he wants to renew his church is that his church gets on mission again, that his church really believes that Jesus is the source of our problems today, whether it's COVID or disease or or brokenness, whether it's uh, political or racial, that Jesus is the source of truth and understanding. Real quick, I want to invite Robert. Would you come up, Robert? Robert was sharing, he's one of our elders here at the church, and he felt I would call, let's just stand up here so everybody can see. uh, He had what I would call a A prophetic word or a word of knowledge. I don't know if you would describe it as such. So would you just share that, Robert, with that word of knowledge? Sure.
1: Good morning, guys. Um, Yeah, I was in bed uh, last Tuesday morning. It was like 5.30, and uh, I just woke up on my own, and I was thinking about my neighbors and my co-workers that I care about that are going through so much and people at church and just—I wasn't even praying. I was just thinking, like, should I start a neighborhood Bible study? How can I talk to, to my coworkers about the gospel? What, what can I do, Lord? Or I wasn't thinking to the Lord, I was just thinking. And I heard in my spirit, um, the gospel still works. And when I heard that, and I was thinking about, is this from the Lord, or is this just a thought? This The presence of the Lord came down upon me so powerfully, and it remained with me, and I felt the Lord, and I knew it was from the Lord. And he started reminding me how simple the gospel was, the gospel that I heard as a 12-year-old Catholic boy at an old Baptist summer camp, that we all stand condemned to eternity apart from God. In this life, we taste his goodness, even if we're wicked. It says he causes the rain to fall upon the just and the unjust. But every day, we sow for ourselves more and more death through our thoughts, words, and actions. And it says the wages of sin is death, and that's what that old preacher began with. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The gospel that Eric is preaching is simple: we all deserve to die because of our sins, and we will die. As certain as we'll die in the flesh, we will experience the second death and be shut out from the presence of God for all eternity. But God, in His great love, sent His own Son to be brutally whipped and beaten and spat on, and mocked, and murdered, so that we don't have to. He delivered us from the death that we deserve. He did it on the cross. You can still go to the place in Israel that he was crucified. It happened, and he bore our punishment, the full weight of the righteous damnation of Almighty God, and then he rose from the dead, And if we will, so we know that God accepted his sacrifice on our behalf. And if we will simply tell people this simple gospel and tell them all you have to do is assert your faith in Jesus and forsake your sin, you can be born again today. You can receive a new heart. You can be washed. You can be clean. You can receive in place of your heart of stone, a heart of flesh you can receive a brand new life today. I did when I was 12 years old and I felt clean. I knew that I had been forgiven. I knew that God's Holy Spirit lived inside of me. And I remember 30 minutes after praying that prayer and being born again, I, I, I said something negative to somebody that was hurtful, and I felt so grieved in my spirit. I'm telling, you, and I went to my cabin at camp, and got on my knees, and repented. I was 12 years old. I was changed. You can be changed. You can be changed today, and this is this gospel works. You don't have to have a sociology. You don't have to have a PhD in sociology. You don't have to have layers of theology. You don't have to have it all figured out. You don't have to have thick tomes of apologetics on your shelf. Just tell people what Jesus did for you and tell them that they can be born again. Tell your coworkers, tell your neighbors. I know there's a lot going on in our society. We got the LGBT stuff. We have racial strife. We have political division. We have inflation's going out of control. It doesn't matter. The gospel still works. Amen. It still works today. I I heard an old, old story, how a Savior came from glory, how he gave his life on Calvary to save a wretch like me. I heard about his groaning and his precious blood's atoning, and then I repented of my sins and won the victory. If you haven't been born again, this altar today is open. There will be men and women of God up here after the break, after the service is over. We may not even know you yet, but we care about you. We love you, and we will pray that prayer with you, and you can be born again this morning, and you can go and tell everyone you know today and tomorrow at work that Jesus Christ is a Savior and that you can be saved. Amen. He's calling
0: us to walk in his healing. He's calling us to walk. I, I would say in the simple gospel, right? He's—he's he's just. It doesn't. We can look at the world and, and the complexity of the problems and the solutions and all of that, and yet all of that. I, I think that absolutely was a prophetic word from the Lord. Is that the gospel still works? It's still simple. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand Jesus' death on the cross and he will bring healing and restoration in every single area of your life. The only question is, remember you're on the trial. Do you believe? And will you respond with your life? Okay, final point is this a powerful one, and in some ways where we began with communion, this idea of Jesus will come a second time as a judge. Daniel, in uh, when he was talking about um, uh, the Son of Man, he's given another vision in Daniel. And listen to this. As my vision continued, Daniel says, that night I saw someone like a son of man coming with the the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient one and was led into his presence. He was given authority, honor, and sovereignty over all the nations of the world. So that people of every race and nation and language would obey him. His rule is eternal and it will never end. His kingdom will never be destroyed. Jesus was claiming to be that son of man and that son of God. Jesus was saying, I am returning again but this time not as a, a babe in a manger, but as a king and as judge. And he's inviting us to, yes, say, yes, I receive you as healer. I receive you as Lord and Savior. And I want to receive and live my life that you are my judge, that I will give an account, Jesus said, of every careless Word. In days of the kingdom, you students, we were wrestling with the Lamb's Book of Life that will be opened at the end. And what are the other books that are opened? Colin and Book of Deeds. Good student. Free cup of coffee for you. Yes. That that there will be an entrance into the kingdom and that's whether our name's written in the Lamb's book of life. But there is reward and punishment. Or at least the the pulling away of rewards. that, That how we live as Christians and as children matter. That God wants us to not simply state our belief but live in response to this testimony. So my question is, are you living with the fear of God, a reverence for Christ Jesus, knowing that you will give an account of your life? I would say, too, that when I was, when I was raised uh, early in, in the faith and, and wrestling with this, I heard that Jesus doesn't want you to judge. And as I've grown, that was rooted in this, you know, um, do not judge lest you be judged, right? And I've wrestled with that, and I said, you know what? I don't think that's true. I think that was wrong teaching. Or maybe they taught it right, and I just understood it wrongly. But Jesus was, he was talking about a humility, not being hypocritical in your judgment. Walking in humility before him. In fact, the parable, you know, the parable of the plank in your own eye to see the speck of dust in your brother's. And he's saying, I would say, don't be judgmental, don't be hypocritical, don't be prideful, all those things. And I think I was taught it in this way well, who am I to judge other people's lives? Have you heard that? Who am I to judge? But listen to how he ends that parable. He says this. You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye. He's talking about doing that internal work, that humility, that self-reflection, that confession that hopefully we all did. And listen to how he ends it. And then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. And I tell you, I was convicted on this point that I don't want to not share the truth with the people that I love. Even if it's a hard truth. Even if it's a challenge to how they're living or how they're, they're, they're walking. But I don't want to be at that judgment day and they say, Eric, why didn't you tell me that I was living wrong? Why didn't you tell me that 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 was sin? Why didn't you tell me? So I don't want to be judgmental or hypocritical or all those kind of things. Absolutely, I want to respond to say, Lord, help me to see the the planks in my eyes, but then, Lord, give me the strength and the willingness to speak truth in love, to share with my loved ones if the things that they are doing are leading to hell. I want to live in response to Jesus as healer, Jesus as Lord and Savior, and Jesus as judge. He's inviting us to believe and respond with our lives. Can we pray together? So, Lord, we just invite your truth, the truth of who you are, to rest deeply in our souls, Lord God. Lord, would you, in whatever way we need to hear from you, Lord God, would you come, Holy Spirit, and convict our hearts and where we need to change our lives? Would you convict us, Lord, change us, and transform us? We pray that in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Would you stand for the benediction? And as Robert mentioned, I'm going to dismiss you. If you have kids in children's ministry, would you get them? But I want to invite you... If you want to come and pray to receive Christ Jesus, Robert's going to be here. If you want to be prayed to, to receive healing and restoration, Veda's going to come forward. Pete's going to come forward. And after about three or four minutes, when we go and get our kids, um, the worship band's going to continue to play. We're just going to have a time of lingering. And however the, the Lord would invite you to, to further pray and worship, want to extend that. Would you open your hands? So Jesus, we want to receive you for all who you are. Lord, please forgive us for compartmentalizing you and putting you in a box. We want to receive you as Lord and Savior, as healer, and judge, Lord Jesus. We pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. God bless you.